Hi guys, welcome to the second episode of the Smurfit Speaker Series. This week, I had the pleasure of chatting with Kingsley Aikens. Kingsley is CEO of the Networking Institute, and prior to this, he held a variety of roles, including CEO of Worldwide Ireland Funds and Diaspora Matters. He's a master of networking and shares his wisdom in this episode, so make sure you have a pen and paper close by. Anyway, that's enough from me. Please enjoy this in-depth conversation with Kingsley Aikens. So Kingsley, you graduated from Trinity College with a degree in economics and politics. Um, the question is, when you were in college, uh, were you kind of consciously focused on building a network there? And how important do you think college networks are, or colleges for creating a network? Wow. Well, that's a good question because, you know, frankly, looking back, and I need a good memory to look back that long, I, I didn't, I didn't, I had no idea about networking when I was in college, certainly didn't uh, go about networking in any way or form in college at all. I actually think there's tends to be two types of networks in the world. I think you tend to have organic networks, which sort of just happen and really depend on your family, your schooling, your university, the activities you do, whether they're sporting or cultural or whatever you tend to build a kind of a, a group of connections and friends and relationships and I guess you could call it a network but they they just happen in an organic way whereas later in life I think you have to be intentional in in building your network and that's a kind of a whole other different way of doing things so certainly when I was at college I wasn't saying I'm going to go out there and network but college is a unique um, forum as you guys know in, in Smurfwood because what what you have it's a very special kind of period of your life. You have a group of really smart people who are all together coming from quite disparate backgrounds and you're all quite equal in what you're doing. Uh, There's not that many kind of hierarchies. And I suppose in a way you have an opportunity to get to know people, particularly in a a sort of a master's environment who who are going to go and take very disparate routes uh, in their careers. And it will be a fine kind of route which you have Uh, that'll see you through uh, as you progress through your career. I mean, when I think, three of my closest buddies still today are people I was in college with. Um, And I certainly found, I was particularly keen on sport and I found sport was, it not only was great to get to know people from different backgrounds while I was in college, but it became, certainly for me, it became my passport as I, you know, sauntered out into the world and headed off to other countries. I was particularly interested in rugby. I, I can't tell you the number of times rugby has been the kind of the the way to open doors, particularly as I went to kind of rugby countries. Uh, it was just extraordinary. And I look back now and I realize that was the common denominator for a lot of things that I did was actually having that shared sporting interest. Brilliant. Uh, and where did you go then after Trinity? What was the next step for you? Well, I shouldn't really admit it, but I actually, <laughs> I went off and played rugby in for a team in France and uh, I wasn't that keen on getting stuck into work career. And I had an opportunity. Um, it didn't actually work out. I got badly injured and I had to give up rugby after about a, just about a season playing over there. But it was a good introduction. It was a good it was a good experience, a very different experience. Um, then I went and worked in London for a while. And then I decided to go back to college, a bit like what some of you guys are doing. And um, I, I did a master's in international trade. And, and because I kind of did that, I got into an organization called Chorus Troctola, which is now, it's changed its name, it's now Enterprise Ireland. And uh, I joined them and I wanted to go overseas. And I, I put my name in the hat to be for a transfer to one of their offices overseas. And in those days, you, you couldn't, I think even now, you, you can't choose where you go. You just have to accept whatever you get. And there was five cities up for grabs on the day that they were selecting. And the cities, I always remember this because there were Moscow, uh, Sydney, Lagos, uh, Glasgow, and then the glamour posting, Limerick, right? So uh, my name came up opposite Sydney. So I was posted to Sydney in Australia. So I basically said, listen, guys, you know, when your country calls, you know, you got to put your body on the line and give the ultimate sacrifice. So I said, I'll go to Australia and I'll be happy to do it. And I went there and I spent eight wonderful years down in Australia. You've been there, so you know what it's like. It's, it's a super place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was short-lived, but uh, good to see it all the same. And how did you find landing in Australia as a young 20-something-year-old? And like, Did you have much of a connection down there? Did you know anyone when you got there? Didn't know a sinner. Uh, met quite a few sinners down there, 
but didn't know anybody when I arrived. I flew across. I was just thinking about it the other day. I flew over the most bizarre and extraordinary uh, eclectic societies and cultures and races in the world. And I arrived in Sydney airport early one morning, as one does. Uh, I got my bags and jumped in the taxi and the driver was a fellow from Kilkenny. So, you know, sometimes no matter where you go, you're going to find these people. But, uh, but it was a good lesson for me because I knew I had to build a network, not just to thrive, but just to survive. Um, and it was a really great experience just starting with a blank sheet of paper. Didn't have any of those organic networks, didn't have any of the school connections or anything like that, but, but got going and I found it was a great exercise. Brilliant. And what, what were the kind of uh, the things you might've done to try and build that network? Was it, was it kind of, kind of slot in with the sporting, the sporting context like you were used to, or did you kind of reach out to any business people to try and build it in that way through Enterprise Ireland or what was the tactic? So what happened was in, was kind of interesting because I, I my mum had a neighbour who she was friendly with who's and, and discovered her son lived in Sydney, um, and so his name is Paul McCulloch, and um, so she she arranged for me to have an introduction. So I called Paul, I met him, and I I said, listen, I don't know anybody. Would you introduce me to the local Irish business network here in Sydney? And he said, well, there isn't really one. So I said, well, why don't we set one up? Why don't we just establish one? You know people here. We'll get them together. And so we, we had this first event and there's about 30 people at this event and we held it in the, uh, the, the, rug, the Australian Rugby Union head office because John O'Neill was head of the Australian Rugby Union in those days and he was an Irish Australian. And um, as I said, 30 people showed up um, and we called ourselves the Lansdowne Road Club because we used to, he played rugby, I played rugby. And, um, and then in a spirit of sort of sporting ecumenism, we dropped the road because there was people who played GAA and people who played soccer and all sorts of different sports. And of course, there was lots of women and they weren't playing rugby in those days. And so we opened up the whole organization and it just grew. It just took off like a, like a train. And um, they actually asked me back last year and it was the, I think the 30th anniversary of that first dinner. And there was 2000 people at the, at the lunch. And um you know, it, it it was just a way of answering a need, which was to develop a network, but also it ended up being for many people who certainly those who came to Australia didn't know anybody. They kind of got engaged with the Lansdowne Club and it became a way of meeting people. So so it was a really terrific exercise. Brilliant, brilliant, yeah. Um, and when you were in Australia, you you founded the Australia Ireland funds and then subsequently the Australian fund of New, or the Ireland fund of New Zealand. And what just wondering what is the rationale behind setting up those funds or setting up those organizations as well. Yeah. So the Ireland funds, um, <clears throat> you know, were established by a guy called Tony O'Reilly, who was a, in those days, a really, really well-known international businessman. He was the CEO of the HJ Heinz food company in Pittsburgh. Um, he founded it with another guy called Dan Rooney, who was the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, a football team. And it was to actually, the, the idea was to reach out to what they actually called in those days, the Irish empire, which was an empire not built by military might or force of arms, I hasten to add, but just by the fact that there's such a huge uh, Irish diaspora around the world. And could they put together an organization that could actually, you know, tap into that, the success of these people and engage, and engage them with projects in Ireland. Now, we're talking about way back uh, when we had a, you know, a really brutal conflict in Northern Ireland. And, um, and so it was this idea of, you know, the diaspora engaging and helping and supporting projects of peace, culture, charity. And, and that's what Tony set up in the States. And then, you know, he asked, I got to know him and he asked me, would I establish it with some other people in Australia, which, which I did, and, and also New Zealand. And then I established it in Singapore and up in China, in Japan. And then, you know, I got to know the organization well, and I got offered the job of running it out of, out of the US where it's much, much stronger. And so I, after, you know, after nearly 10 years left Australia, I went to live in Boston in Massachusetts, a bit colder. <laughs> Brilliant. So I can just, just to bring us back a little bit. So you're in Australia, mid twenties and Tony O'Reilly is in America, a big Irish businessman. I'm just struggling to make the connection there. How did, how did that go? Or how did you kind of get in contact and go? You go know, what, you know, back to kind of what I said at the beginning, the connection was rugby because you see Tony played rugby for Ireland and for the lions. And uh, you know, he scored 39 tries for the lions uh, his first tour, he was in 1955. He played the Lions tour in South Africa and he was 18 years of age. You can just imagine being on the Lions at 18. Then he went back to New Zealand in 59. Um, he scored 16 tries on, the, on that first tour and he scored 17 on the second tour. And nobody's ever become close to that. 
but he he leveraged and used rugby to advance his career um, and get himself into positions. Of course, he was a very talented businessman. So I connected with him about the Lansdowne Club. Would he be engaged and supported? And uh, I, I wrote a I wrote a cold letter, totally cold letter to him in Pittsburgh. He didn't know me from Adam, and um, I didn't even anticipate a reply. But actually, he wrote back a very nice letter. Still have it, and he said he'd love to meet up. And he said, um, "I'm actually coming to Australia. Uh, I'm buying newspapers in Australia because he was a big newspaper owner, um, and maybe we could meet for lunch." So I was going to write back and say, no, nah, I'm busy. But actually, no, I said, I, <laughs> no, I'd love to meet you for lunch. He was my hero. Um, so I met this guy. We, we talked rugby for about an hour. Um, and then he got, uh, got me involved with the Ireland funds. And then eventually, that's how I moved across to Boston, because, um, because he wanted me to work uh, over there. Brilliant, brilliant. And that's a cool, cool story to have. And just, just kind of some, for some of the younger people are, are like, oh, we're all young, but... Um, we're looking at the Tony O'Reilly's of, of our generation and they're obviously pretty big fish, but just wondering what kind of practical tips you might've put in that letter or what way you might've phrased some things to get them to, um, to warm to you a little bit. Well, you know, I think he was particularly interested in the whole notion of building a global Irish network, a network of people who are either Irish born or uh, Irish ancestry or Irish affinity. So he, he did have that vision. And in fact, to his credit, he, um, he noticed what the Jewish community did in the United States to support Israel. And he always had this notion, could the Irish community there do something to support Ireland, particularly as we had this pretty awful conflict going on in Northern Ireland. Was there a way he could engage? And in fact, we had this great big dinner to launch the organization in New York, in the Waldorf Astoria, in the great hotel. And the dinner was so dramatically unsuccessful the only reason we had a second dinner a year later was to pay for the first dinner that we had. And that's $700 million ago. So, so his idea was a great idea, but didn't start very, very well. He's a very, very funny speaker. And, um, you know, because we were modeled on the UJA, the United Jewish Appeal, and because we had this, uh, he had this concept of case. He said the case is a very important theory in business, and that stands for copy and steal everything. Figure out who does this stuff really well, and the Jewish community do it very well in the United States. See what we could take from their model. Could we apply it to Ireland? And, of course, he turned out to be right. I mean, it was very funny, that first dinner. I will never forget it. He, because we were modeled on the UJA, and we had a slogan, Peace, Culture, Charity, he said, we're going to change our slogan, and we're going to be, change it to look Irish, dress British, think Yiddish. If you could get those three things going in a row, you just might have a, a, you know, an effective organization. And of course he was right. And the organization really flourished in the US and of course around the world. And that's what it was. It was a global network of people who had an interest in Ireland and nobody had ever done that for Ireland in the same way. And, and that was really interesting. And in fact, I've been back here now nearly 10 years and I, I was 21 years with the Ireland Funds of Beck here, about 10 years. And I work with lots of countries now. In fact, I just was this afternoon did a webinar with Lithuania, um, who all they want to do is to put in place a similar structure for their countries to what we did for Ireland. And, you know, there's, you know, there's 280 million people in the world live in a country other than the one they were born in. So it's an extraordinary resource. And so what the Jewish community started for helping Israel and the Irish did for, for Ireland, now the Indians are doing it for India and the Scots are doing it for Scotland and the Welsh and the New Zealanders and Australians and Peru and like over 100 countries now are doing this. In fact, cities are doing it. I did a job last year for the city of Copenhagen who are building a diaspora strategy for the people who went to Copen, who, who left Copenhagen and went to live around the world. So it's, it's a really interesting thing. And, you know, we, we now are not one of the top four countries in the world in this category, in this space. So we have a lot to offer the world. And uh, I've always been saying to the Department of Foreign Affairs here that this is one of the great things we can do, particularly in Africa, um, because we, uh, Ireland has a great history in, our, in Africa, particularly of missionaries, but there are no more missionaries uh, coming out of Ireland into Africa. But all these African countries, what they want to do is to connect, connect with their diasporas around the world. And that's an interesting challenge, an interesting opportunity for Ireland. Brilliant. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And, and just to take us back then, you're in, you're in Boston, you've taken over as executive director of the Ireland Funds. Can you just give us a little bit of background as to what that fund was and what the aims were of the fund over the last maybe 20 years? 
Yeah, so the fund, as I said, was uh, was to bring together and build these networks of people who are not not just Irish people, but actually people who have Irish ancestry. You know, there's a there's this extraordinary diaspora. You know, like ten million people have left the island of Ireland in history, in total, in history, ten million people. So, so more people have left this island per head than any other place in the world. And that's the bad news. But the good news is that we now have a uh, we have this extraordinary network of sometimes we call it A and I affluence and influence around the world. I mean, maybe later tonight we will have one of them, you know, appointed as president of the United States. I mean, Joe Biden has got strong connections to to Mayo. He's part of the Irish diaspora around the world. So, so the whole objective was was really could we put together a network of these people who would engage with us engage with stuff going on in Ireland. And I think it's been, you know, done, been quite successful in that. It's particularly was in the area, whole area of philanthropy and, and fundraising and all that kind of stuff and supporting nonprofit organizations and particularly stuff in Northern Ireland um, where we, you know, we were engaged in, in supporting dozens and dozens of integrated schools for kids from both sides go to school together. And anyway, lots and lots and lots of different projects. And, uh, you know, the organization has, done, has, has grown a lot around the world since then. Brilliant, brilliant. And you've obviously raised a lot of money through those funds and for those funds, but just looking, is there any kind of tips or practical advice on, on or maybe even lines you might deliver when buttering <laughs> people up to, in order to, uh, to donate big sums towards <laughs> these funds in Ireland? Well, buttering up, I usually use that term with respect to parsnips and <laughs> rather than people. Um, if you mean uh, cultivating them and building a strong and diverse relationship with them, That's perhaps, yeah. um, you know, I, I, an interesting story I, I got, I did some, I mean, the, the whole category of, of philanthropy and fundraising is all about putting in place a process. So when I was in Boston, I got fr- very friendly uh, with a guy um, and he ran the fundraising for Harvard, the university in, in Boston. And Harvard are an absolute machine. They have 600 staff in fundraising. They raise enormous amounts of money for the institution, incredibly successful. Harvard was built in 1686 because an English clergyman gave a gift of some books. They established a college. It was a great university then. It's a great university now. It's probably one, one of the greatest brand names in the world when it comes to education is Harvard University. But they had a process behind all of this. And it was all about research, cultivation, solicitation, and stewardship. And just to give you an example of how that kind of worked, I remember through, through my research, um, I discovered that um, Roy Disney, who was a member of the, the Disney family in, um, in Hollywood, he was actually of Irish ancestry. His, his family were originally called Disney. They were French Huguenots. They went to Scotland, then Northern Ireland, then Canada. And then California, where Walt Disney was born in California. He had a brother, Roy, who had a son, Roy Jr. And Roy Jr. was the guy I got to know because he spent his summers living in Cork. In, um, and he sailed, a, he sailed a racing yacht at a Royal Cork Yacht Club. I don't sail, but I have friends who sail. And I found somebody who knew somebody else on his crew and arranged for me to meet with Roy and have a cup of tea with him one morning in the, in the yacht club in Cork. And I met with Roy and his wife, Patty. And they turned out to be absolutely lovely and delightful people. And then I arranged to meet them for breakfast one day. And I asked them for $5 million over breakfast, which is for breakfast is quite a lot of money. And, uh, but that, that meeting, that breakfast was two and a half years after I met them for coffee in Royal Cork Yacht Club, was my 29th meeting with them. And was the first time I asked them for money. So, so I, spent 29, I spent two and a half years of my life building a relationship with Roy and Patty and, and their kids and their, their dogs and their executives. And I never stopped asking him. I asked him to introduce me to people in his company, people in the Hollywood industry. I asked him to chair events. I asked him to join our board. I asked him to come and look at projects. So I never stopped asking, but the one thing I didn't ask him for was money. But he knew because he was a smart guy, he knew one day the train was going to stop at his station. He knew one day I was going to come and ask him for money. He knew all of that. The only thing he didn't know, he didn't know how much I was going to ask him for. And I didn't want him to die wondering. So I arranged, I took my boss and we went to see him in Hollywood. I sat down with him and his wife and they knew something was going to happen because we were trying to raise a hundred million in a campaign. So they knew they were a target for this. But still, they were never going to offer anything unless I used the sentence. And you were asking me about sentences and phrase. So I always used the same sentence when I was soliciting money 
from a in potential investor. And the sentence was Roy and Patty, joint decisions, these big decisions. Um, I'd like you to consider, nice soft verb, uh, a gift of 1 million a year for five years. So I didn't ask for 5 million, I asked for 1 million a year for five years. And then, and it's a cliche in our industry, um, the next person to speak loses the sale. It's a very interesting phenomenon because it's quite a tense and theatrical moment. But the next person to speak loses the sale because it's a very difficult moment, nearly embarrassing moment. Um, and every sinew of my body wanted to break the awkwardness and to say something like, Asher, if you can't do it this year, next year would be grand, which would have destroyed the whole two and a half years of work I did. So we forced ourselves not to say anything. And eventually... He said, wow, that's, that's a bit north of what we had in mind. So, you know, we came in a little too high. In fact, the worst answer we could have got, uh, Simon, is if he said, yeah, sure, we could do that because then we would have asked for too little. So he said, that's a bit rich. Then his wife said, yeah, right, but we did 10 million for the LA Cathedral. And we knew in our research they'd done that for the LA Cathedral. And at this stage, we said, look, you have to think about it. You have to talk to your, your family. You've got to talk to your lawyers and advisors and your accountants you know, why don't we just leave it here and I'll come back in a few weeks and when you've had a chance to think about it. He actually didn't have to go about thinking, but he didn't, I didn't have to go back because um, his office rang our office and he said, uh, they said, Mr. Disney wants to make a gift of stock, which is very attractive tax-wise in the US to give a gift of stock to a nonprofit. And, uh, and we, we, we sold the stock and it wasn't 5 million, it was actually 3.2 million. So we got 3.2 million, but it was still a very successful, um, a great occasion, great event, great result uh, from a fantastic guy. Uh, but it took two and a half years of my life. And that's the sort of, that's the sort of story. And I've many of those. Definitely a process anyway. To put It's a, a process. It's a process. You're so right. Brilliant. And um, just notice you've obviously done a lot of traveling. So my next question is, is, um, you know, obviously we're predominantly speaking to graduates tonight. Um, I was just wondering what your advice would be on, on should you travel when you're young as kind of a formative experience or do you think you'd be better off kind of staying in Ireland, maybe staying in Dublin, building networks that might uh, come to, uh, to prosper in the future and maybe benefit you further down the line? Yeah, look, I think, you know, there's two schools of thought on that one is, you know, stay here and get your professional qualifications and then head off or, you know, just head off as soon as you can. I was kind of of the latter school. I I just wanted to get get away from here. This was not a very cosmopolitan um, international city like it is now. Back in my day, we used to say it was male, pale and stale. You know, it was not very, uh, um, you know, intercultural and multicultural, if you like. I couldn't wait to get away. Um, my favorite road in Ireland is the road to the airport. I just love, and I still do to this day, love traveling. Not that I can do any of it right now. Um, I'm also a believer in the phrase of um, who knows Ireland, who only Ireland knows. I mean, how do you get to know your country if you don't know anything else? Um, that was one of the things that struck me about America is that so many Americans have never been, even been outside their own state. Um, so they're an extremely uninternational group of people in many ways. Um, so for me, uh, I wanted to get away. I wanted to go to other countries. I wanted to learn languages um, and come back. Other people, they're very happy not to do that. That one is not better than the other. I think everybody's got to figure out their own road. Um, but, you know, life is a random walk. You know, you just don't know what's going to happen. I'm a huge fan of serendipity, luck, chance. You know, the fact that I met Tony O'Reilly was purely a serendipitous kind of you know, event, writing a letter. Most letters don't get returned. It just, things happened and it certainly changed my life. I'm a great believer. That's why I think networking is important is that one introduction, one conversation can change your life. It's happened to me on a number of occasions, but they don't happen lying in bed. They don't happen sitting at your desk. They happen when you're in motion. They happen when you're out and about. They happen when you put your talents on display. They happen when you talk to strangers. They happen when you change your routines. Um, all of those things, you can, you can actually make luck happen in your life. I'm a believer that luck is like a gentle wind always at your back rather than a kind of a bolt of lightning from the blue. And I think uh, it's a good way of, to look about serendipity, luck and chance that you can make it work for you. It definitely helps to be proactive in that regard, I'd say. Um, just there on Tony O'Reilly, you've obviously mentioned him a few times. You might even consider him maybe a mentor or perhaps a sponsor. Um, 
whatever terminology you might want to put in it. But I'm just wondering how important is finding a person like that and how would you go about finding a person like that? Yeah, I'm a fan. Back up a little. I'm a fan of a guy, uh, a fan of a woman called Carla Harris. And she's um, 35 years with Morgan Stanley in uh, Wall Street. Um, highest black American executive in the banking sector, wonderful person. But she, she does great TED Talks and great uh, YouTube videos and really worth um, for you and your colleagues to check her out. She's just fantastic, terrific communicator. She's written books. But she talks a lot about the three types of people you need in your career. You need an advisor who will help you technically do the job that you have to do, and that's important. She says you also need, um, you need to have a, you need to have a, a mentor, somebody that you can talk to and will give you the good, the bad, and the ugly. The mentor might be in your company, it might not be in your company. Um, a mentor is, is really important. But she says you need something else in your career. You need a sponsor. A sponsor has to be in your company. See, the thing is, a sponsor just doesn't talk to you. A sponsor talks about you. So why do you need a sponsor? Well, she says everybody needs a sponsor because all big decisions about your promotion, about your compensation, and about next projects are gonna get taken, take, given to you. All those decisions will be taken by a group of people sitting around a table in a room, and you won't be in that room. So you need somebody who will actually speak up for you. And if nobody mentions or says anything when your name is mentioned around that table, you don't get a look in. So, so it's pretty dramatic stuff, what she's saying. And she says, everybody in, the, in business has power, but nobody's going to use their power on somebody to help somebody with whom they don't have a relationship. And that's why it's really important that you have those different types of people in your, in your network. Uh, and you're, you know, the question you asked, how do you get them? Well, very often you have to ask for them. You know, if you don't ask, you don't get in life. So you actually have to ask and approach people. Um, uh, but it certainly is a, is a real, really important that you develop that, that uh, network with those diverse people in it. Because you see, um, a lot of people don't realize that the technical skills they need to get their job in the first instance when they leave Smurfit or wherever, and they're really important, very important. But as you progress you, through your career, they become less important because everybody has them and relationships become more important. And there's this, Harvey Coleman is an American writer, has a thing called the PI theory and, uh, of career progress. And he says, PI stands for P-I-E. Of course, P is performance. He said, how well you do your job contributes 10% to your career progress, which at first glance seems ridiculous. Surely how well you do your job, it's gotta be 90%. That's gotta be the single most important thing. Do a super job. And he says, no. He says, everybody does a super job. You wouldn't be in the organization unless you did a super job. He said, it gets you on the pitch. It gets you on the ladder. doesn't get you up the ladder. He said, you get paid on performance. You get promoted on what other people think of your potential. So now he's introducing those two little squishy little words, other people, those two pesky words. So now suddenly you're introducing subjective opinion. You're introducing this, you're, you know, it's quite interesting here, this whole notion of what other people think of you. And that moves on to the I of the pie theory and the I stands for your image. What do people think of you? What's your reputation? Your reputation is what somebody says about you when you're not in the room. And the E, and that's 30%. So the E of the pie theory of career progress, and it's 60% of career progress. And E stands for exposure. Who's seen you in action? Who's seen you perform? Who's seen you speak publicly? I mean, being able to speak publicly is an incredibly important part of career progression. But a lot of these things, and certainly things like networking, are not taught at school or college. You know, you're just left to your own devices. And yet I think, I, I, if I had my way, I'd be teaching everybody courses in networking because that's going to be the big differentiator between you and others, and it's going to have a huge impact on your life. Definitely. Yeah, it's definitely a core competency, I think. And you've kind of proved that already in what you said. Um, just from, from personal experience, um, one thing I, I can kind of notice in a conversation when you're one-on-one -on -one with someone is, is someone, when you can tell when they've, um, they've, they've finished speaking and they're just, they're, they're thinking about what they're going to say next and not listening <laughs> to your reply. 
So I'm just, I, I find it very frustrating when someone is doing this and it's, it's kind of inconsiderate. But I'm just wondering, what do you think the importance of listening plays in networking? Well, I would say, you know, I'd say that the number one skill in networking is to be a really great listener. I think to be a world-class listener is an incredible talent to have because we live in a world where most people don't listen. Most people only listen to prepare what they're going to say next, not to hear what somebody is saying. Most people think that listening is a sign of weakness, of not being an expert. Most people, when you do a communications course, it's all about talking and speaking. And yet, you know, when you're speaking, you learn nothing new. You're only repeating what you already know or what you've just read. So actually, you have to see listening as a form of activity. Uh, you have to see listening as not just listening to what somebody is saying, but what they're going to say next. To be a generative listener, you know, to, to allow people, you know, to express themselves and not to interrupt them. Because we always want to interrupt people and to wow them about how great we are. And they're not interested. I mean, Simon, if, if, if I said to you, you know, I'm thinking of buying a car and you said, I bought one last week. The guy wanted 20,000, but I offered him 10. It's only done 30,000 miles. Fantastic car. Simon, I don't give a shit about you and your car. I want to talk about me and my car story. And you've hijacked it. You've taken it and talked about you. I don't care. And that is so common all the time, everywhere. So if you really see listening as a form of activity, as you see, being a good conversationalist is actually saying possibly quite little is a very powerful weapon. Definitely, yeah. And letting the other people feel as though they're talking and they come out of the conversation thinking they've had a great chat with someone and you actually haven't said anything. <laughs> I know. They, and they'll say, Simon, you're, he's a really great conversationalist. Simon didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose empathy probably feeds into that as well, leading on from listening. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you think it could be you know, even more important now coming into this tech age and tech world where, you know, it could be more of a competitive advantage for, for humans, I suppose, going forward. Look, I think we're at a very interesting inflection point in terms of that whole topic. Um, because uh, if you look at, um, you know, what LinkedIn are saying from surveys from their managers, if you look at what Deloitte are saying, if you look at what Google are saying, the key determinant in the future will actually be soft skills. And soft skills, you know, allow you to optimize your hard skill talent. But soft skills are all about communication, collaboration, cooperation, and networking. And, and, and that's so fascinating. In fact, I was lucky enough to spend a couple of days teaching in um, the National University of Singapore a couple of years ago. And NUS is the number one university in Asia, number 20 in the world. And they've set up a new center in there and it's called the Center for Future Ready Graduates. Don't you love the title? It kind of says what the problem is. The smartest kids in Asia fight to get into this university, but they come out and they're brilliant and deductive and analytical, but pretty crap at the soft skills. And they've actually they've got this whole center now to help them to get better at this whole area of soft skills. So ironically, as we go down the road of AI and robotics and automation, that's all fantastic and great. We do have to watch that we don't become purely high tech and not high touch. And I always think the great, the great, the great networkers totally understand the power of technology and they are high tech, but they're also high touch and they get that balance right. And I think we're veering towards just purely tech. I've talked to heads of major tech companies in Ireland and they've said, you know, one of the challenges is with people coming out of universities now is that they're weak in soft skills. They haven't spent time on everything from public speaking to networking to all those sorts of areas to things like you mentioned empathy, et cetera. And empathy is just putting yourself in the shoes of somebody else, walking across and putting yourself in their shoes and seeing the world from their point of view. Um, you know, Google did a survey and it's online. You can read it. It's called Project Oxygen to find out what makes a leader in Google. And they, they interviewed over you know, 30,000 people over a number of years because they only hired people who had technical ability in Google. They hired people who had STEM and math and PhDs and science, et cetera. And that's great. But when they discovered the eight characteristics you need to be a leader in Google, the eighth and least important they discovered was technical ability. All the other seven were soft skills, the ability to work in a group, you know, the ability to understand other people, to collaborate, to cooperate, all those sort of areas which involve this interpersonal interaction. Because we've left behind the old days of a hierarchy of a company with the boss on the top floor on the corner office looking out. And we're now, these sort of vertical worlds have been replaced by horizontal worlds of teams of teams. 
And people don't stay. You guys, you millennial guys, you don't stay in companies now. You know, my dad left school at age 14, joined a company, left that company age 77. Just a quick 63 years in one company. Those days have gone. Loyalty is gone. Job security is gone. Millennials don't stay. They move around. They want to learn. They want to know what's going. They want to hear from a company. What are you going to do for me? And that's terrific at one level, but it means that you need your network because in terms of getting your next job, 80% of jobs are not advertised. Good jobs are not advertised. You need your network to help you get your next job. Definitely, definitely. And I might just touch on the elephant in the room, which is COVID. Um, obviously, I, I'm just conscious, well, from my own experience, that like meeting someone for a coffee is gone or trying to meet someone new for a coffee is gone. But it, it also means that people are more willing to, to jump on a Zoom call for 20 minutes, you know, if you were to, to reach out to someone and ask them for a as you know, if you any spare time over the next two weeks for, you know, a quick chat, people are more willing to, um, to kind of talk to you. So I'm just wondering if that's something that you've found with regard to networking and reaching out to people. Oh, like as soon as like since COVID has hit, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think as I was saying at the very beginning, you know, we've, we've developed because we've gone online, um, you know, we're not hairdressers or taxi drivers, you know, who, who can't do that. We were able to put all our courses online uh, I actually, every couple, every week or two, I put out a two or three minute little piece on LinkedIn for free. I've written lots of stuff. I give it away for free. I've done 70 webinars around the world. Everything has always resulted in, in other things coming up. So we've developed a whole online identity and tribe of followers, if you like, that we didn't have before. So in a funny sort of way, COVID has done us a bit of a favor because when this passes and it will pass, we'll go back to the more traditional way of networking, but we'll also have this online identity and online tribe that we've put together. So, and I think that, you know, it, it is fascinating because, because of what I was saying, you're not restricted geographically, you know, everybody's on, everybody's available, you know, people are spending time online, you know, uh, just, you don't have to get on a plane and fly off all over the place and spend lots of time and energy and money. You can do a lot of this from, from home. So I think it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating evolution and of course, it's not as good as face to face, and we all miss all that. And I'm, you know, I have to be honest. I'm struggling with not being able to get out of that, get out of here, and spend time with other people. But I do believe that, you know, now is the time to uh, to spend time and energy learning to be good at this. You know, instead of getting down, get ready. Don't hunker down, but just see this as an opportunity for yourself personally and professionally and mentally and spiritually and and physically. Take this opportunity. I went for a swim today down in Sea Points, you know, and every day go down, nearly drown, nearly drown with the cold, but it doesn't matter. I wasn't doing that before. I think see it as an opportunity. And you know the old expression that um, they say uh, in Ireland, uh, when business is down, that's when you paint the shop. You know, do get ready. And uh, you guys are lucky in a way. At one level, you're you're focusing on on your studies and your and your masters now, but hopefully, when you get clear of all of this, you know things will be back, and there'll be an enormous surge uh when this when this stuff when this thing passes brilliant then um just my follow-on question is i know like i'm conscious that a lot of people are aware that networking is important but they might not they might not see it as being urgent or being the priority at the time and we've just kind of spoken about how it's a process it's something that you're doing in your day-to-day -day life and you're always kind of on top of it you're always building um so i'm just just curious do you have any um, kind of daily daily takeaways like like with regard to conversation and stuff like that or kind of always yeah. remembering something small about someone or something like that yeah. just to always yeah. keep it on the good side yeah i think that idea of always remember something small is is a is a great little tip you know if you just remember something about somebody's you know their background their family their favorite sport or food or restaurant or holiday destination and when you repeat that back to them much much later they're always hugely impressed because it showed you listened that big skill of listening and and you know you cared so i think networking is not about any one big thing networking is about doing lots and lots of small things which if you do on a daily basis they become habits they become rituals they become kind of who you are sort of the way you live your life and if you believe that networking is actually what I can give to other people rather than what you can get from other people. And if you give on a consistent basis, as I was saying, it comes back from the network. So I think that um, there's lots of small little things in networks. It's made up of lots of small little tips and ideas and hints and nudges and all that kind of stuff that when you put them all together are substantial. At one level, it feels like picking up grains of sand on the beach just seems impossible. But actually, you know, over time it becomes bucketfuls. 
And when you think about it, in any one day, certainly pre-COVID, you can have a lunch, a breakfast, lunch, dinner. You can have a cup of coffee during the day. You can have a glass of wine or a beer after work. Five opportunities a day to network, 25 a week. Just take two of them to have a networking event. And guess what? That's 100 virtually by the end of the year. And that's how those buckets of sand grow by make it part and parcel of who you are, the way you live your life. And it's something that you believe is important. You don't keep score. You don't say, hey, Simon, I did you a favor a while ago. You owe me one. They just, it's just the way you live your life. You think like a farmer who plants a seed, waters, nurtures, just knows there's going to be a harvest. That's the mental approach to take to this stuff. Great advice, I'd say. Um, my second last question for you before we open it to the floor. Uh, any particular books that you might recommend? Um, in, in terms of networking or just generally? Well, in terms of networking, I would say, uh, <laughs> you know, I, you're going to laugh at this and your colleagues are going to laugh at this, but, you know, still the best book in this space was written by a guy called Dale Carnegie. And it's in every airport in the world today, but it, it was written back in the 1930s. And the book is called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And just to give you some of the, some of the hints of the things he said, he said the sweetest sound that anybody ever heard was the sound of their own name. Very simple, isn't it? He said, the smile on your face means more than the clothes on your back. He said, to be interesting, be interested. He said, a really good question beats a really good comment. He said, as you were saying earlier, when you, when you talk about yourself and your life and what you're doing, people think you're a bore. When you let them talk about themselves and their lives, they think you're a wonderful conversationalist. You know, he said, um, in it, being able to handle and interact with people is more important than any technical qualifications. And he said lots more in a slightly folksy style. So that's certainly worth reading. More mod more recently, um, there's a guy, Keith Ferrazzi, wrote a book called Never Eat Alone. And he spoke at the Pendulum Summit. I think he's, a, he's really, he's worth reading. There's a woman called Nancy Klein, who's an American who lives in London. She wrote a book called Time to Think. And that's all about being a really good conversationist and how you can use conversation and communications to become a really great listener. I think those, those three are certainly worth, um, worth reading. Anything by Reid Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn. Um, he's written some interesting books about, about networking. And they are, when you think about it, 700 million people have given all their information to LinkedIn. It's a pretty phenomenal uh, source of information. It's now, for and all for you guys, it's the default CV, you know, resume location. You know, that's where people go. As soon as everybody mentions your name, people go there to check you out. Definitely. And that kind of feeds into, I suppose, your personal brand a little bit. Do you, do you have a, an opinion on the importance of a personal brand or what do you think? Yeah, hugely important. I mean, um, you know, I don't like the title because it makes you sound like a tin of beans or some sort of consumer product, but actually is um, everybody has a personal brand, whether you like it or not. In fact, not having a personal brand is having a personal brand. And, you know, you've got to decide in life, do you want to determine what your personal brand is or do you want other people to determine what it is? And when you let other people determine your personal brand, it's generally not the brand that you're comfortable with or happy with. So I think it's really important. And I think um, all it is is about finding out what's true and authentic about yourself and letting other people know. But also I think as part of this, you have to, link, you have to think of yourself as a startup company. It, it was a guy called Tom Peters wrote a lot about this way back. And uh, he called it Me Inc. You are chairman, managing director, CEO of an organization called Me Inc. You have to take responsibility for your own career development. You have to create your own career playbook because nobody else will. And if you're relying on your boss or your boss's boss to do that, guess what? When it comes to who they care about most, themselves or you, you generally come second in that competition. So I think it's really important that you think in terms of your personal brand and creating it, shift, shaping it, um, and constantly being conscious of it. Good stuff. Um, just my final question before we open it up to the floor. So. And doing my research for the chat, uh, I found you recently completed a stand-up comedy um, course. <laughs> I'm just just wondering uh, what was the thought process behind that, and, and has it helped you in any way? Well, I, I, I every start of every year, I, I write down a bucket list of things I want to try and get done doing that year. And last year, um, I put number one on my bucket list was to do a stand-up comedy. Uh, course and there is one in the um, Gaiety School of Acting so I did it I did went for 10 evenings or 10 week period for three hours and um, got to try and get a little bit better at, 
a comedy. So to graduate, I had to perform in a nightclub in Dublin and I had to deliver uh, 21 laughs in seven minutes in my sort of seven minute piece. So I did it, you know, so I'm way outside my comfort zone. I'm not a comedian or anything like that. But I, I also am very conscious that comedy or humor is very important in public speaking. And if you can be, if you can get an audience to laugh, um, there's a wonderful moment after laughter where you have complete control of that audience because they are hanging on the very next thing you say. And that's the moment when you can say the most important message in whatever speech you're giving. And that I find is a very powerful moment. So if you can get, get that sort of humor going and get people laughing, as they say, when people are laughing, they're listening. And one of the great challenges in public speaking is everybody's on their phone or everybody's reading something, everybody's only half listening to you. But when they're laughing, they're completely listening to you. And that's why I did it. Brilliant, brilliant, good stuff. Uh, I might just read some of the questions that have come in here um, just throughout the, the course of the chat. So some that have come to me first and then we'll get to a few of the Q&A ones as well. So um, Kingsley, what is the importance of alcohol as a social lubricant in making friends and having a shared experience uh, of a night out together? Yeah, well, you know, it depends. Um, it's a very interesting question because uh, it, it actually leads on, to another, it leads on to another issue, which I'll just comment on first. Because very often I run these training sessions in organizations like banks or, or uh, consulting companies. Women say the following to me. They say, you know what? Networking is all about two things in Ireland, alcohol and sport. So it's all about going to the Aviva, which is very male things very often. It's all about a group of lads going out on the lash, uh, having a plate of drink. And, and they, some of these people say to me, I, it's just not my world, not my scene. So I totally, I totally understand that. And I think we have to be on sort of understanding and accommodating uh, about that and be careful that we just don't think that this networking is about going out and getting pissed with a load of lads. I mean, that's not. Um, also, we tend to make some mistakes about networking. We tend to uh, mix up networking and sociability. We tend to think that the most sociable person is by definition the best networker. Actually, very often, that's not true. And here's what's interesting. Introverts can be better at networking than extroverts. Sounds counterintuitive. And the reason is because they do it with decency, integrity. They listen. They ask questions. Whereas the extrovert is always looking over your shoulder to find somebody more interesting to talk to. They're always flicking out business cards at a ferocious pace. I mean, you know the way you wake up in the morning, you find somebody's business card and they turn up your trousers and you wonder where did that come from? You know, so so I think you know we have to break down some of the shibboleths around around networking and this alcohol and sport and realize you can do this in lots and lots of different ways. Good stuff. Um, we've two people here looking for jobs. So one is uh hi kingsley i'm hoping to find a job in the us um is my best strategy to build a network via cold email and asking for career advice career advice over a zoom coffee and then the other one is someone an international student coming to dublin looking for a job at this time yeah you know i i've done some teaching up in the smurfwood uh, in the business school there and at the end of every every session i run i always say listen here's my phone number and here's my email and please contact me but the Irish people don't contact me, but the people from overseas always contact me because they want help to get a job. So, you know, um, I'm al I always try my best, you know, and if I know somebody, I have some suggestions. So I, what, I, what I would suggest is if you give people my email at the end of this um, session, and also I'm on LinkedIn and I'd love people to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, there's lots of stuff up there you can get for free. Um, and uh, so if I can help anybody, I certainly will, but I have no guarantees. It just depends on what people particularly, particularly want. Perfect. I'll pass out your email. That's no problem at all. Um, just maybe a couple more questions, maybe two more questions and we'll leave it at that. So um, is there any difference while networking with different culture backgrounds, especially Asians? This anonymous attendee wants to know. Particularly Asians? Particularly Asians, yeah, if you've any insight. Asians, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that, that you know, the Centre for Future Ready Graduates is in an Asian university in, in Singapore um, where they find that people are really outstanding on these hard skills. They're, they're deductive, they're analytical, et cetera. But they've been, I say, they've been stuffed education into them from a very young age. 
I, I, my expression was their foie grad educationists. So they're brilliant and they've been grinds and everything, but they haven't built the more, you know, uh, social skills. And that's what this challenge is there. So I think that there are some challenges there. Um, um, but uh, generally, I, you know, I don't think there's massive cultural differences. I think you have to be sensitive to, you know, certain ways and certain habits in different countries. And perhaps Asian countries will be a little bit different there. But by and large around the world, I think the characteristics of people who are good at networking are quite similar. And I mentioned some of them earlier, the way people work hard at it. Um, they don't keep score. It's just part of who they are and the way they, they, they behave. I think people vary all over the place, but in every country, there's all sorts of different types of people. Well answered. Um, I think the last question here is Kingsley, you spoke about uh, working two and a half years on building a relationship. How do you know when a relationship can bear fruit eventually? And if they're going to invest or to contribute to what you'd like them to do? Um, do, you, do you just cut them out or do you think there's such things as bad connections? Yeah, look, I think that's the $64,000 question is, uh, and I ended up, you know, cultivating relationships with, with hundreds and hundreds of people that I wanted to try and get business from. And very often they failed. I, I, nothing happened. It didn't work. Uh, and throughout that experience, I just got to kind of get a sense, you know, like a sixth sense as to whether how good and how well the relationship was going. But the example I gave, I, I felt throughout that entire experience that this was a, this was a very willing kind of uh, an able and capable and po positive sort of individual who did want to help with us, but he was never going to do anything unless he was asked, he and she, because of the joint decision with his wife, they were not going to do anything unless they were asked. And I think asking is the most powerful marketing tool we all have as individuals. And the worst possible thing that can happen to you when you ask is for somebody to say no, politely and discreetly say no. So it's not the end of the world. And I certainly got lots of no's in what I was doing. At the same time, I got quite good, I think, at just sensing as to whether I was going to make progress. And you just, I think, it's a little bit of a sixth sense, a little bit of just uh, being an old dog at this stuff and been doing it for a long time. You get a sense as to whether somebody is interested or willing. And, and if they're not, they put up some signals. They signal some things in terms of everything from, from, from body language. I mean, communications is only about 7% words. 30% tone of voice and all the rest is body language. And so this is an interpersonal sort of business. This is not, the philanthropy and fundraising doesn't happen um, on a Zoom call, uh, even despite what's going on now. Uh, somebody said to me, you don't propose marriage by email. This is a, a heart to heart, you know, mano a mano, you know, head to head kind of relationship situation and where you get to such a stage of, of trust and belief in what you're doing, that a gift was just a little moment in a longer term relationship. And the business was all about bringing people from a position of total ignorance of, of us and our organization to a position of passionate zealotry. And, and that took a whole load of moves, if you like. Well answered as well. Um, Kingsley, just before we leave, is there any, any particular best way to contact you? Obviously, um, email or LinkedIn, are they your preferred mode of contact? Yeah, LinkedIn is great. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn. I'm putting stuff out on it all the time. And uh, if people have any particular questions they can ask me on LinkedIn, I'll try and get back to them. Perfect, perfect. I think we'll, uh, I think we'll leave it at that. So thanks a million Good for your time. time. Kingsley. And, yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll chat soon.